Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapters 14 and 15, and I'll read chapter 15, verse 7 for us now, as we prepare to hear from lead pastor Travis Simone, as he helps us continue in our series titled, Restored Community. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, 7, we see a clear command, a clear rationale for the command, and a clear result when we obey this command. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That Greek word welcome doesn't just mean to be nice to or to be hospitable with. It literally means to take alongside oneself. My question is, why was this so difficult for the Roman followers of Jesus? Why does the Apostle Paul have to devote an entire chapter and beyond to this matter of welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed them? It has to do with a historical event that's recorded uh, by the uh, Roman historian Suetonius, as well as, you'll see it in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 1. It's called the expulsion of the Jews from Rome under the emperor Claudius. See, in the early 40s, somewhere to about the early 50s, about a decade, give or take a year here or there, the emperor Claudius was frustrated with a disturbance among the Jews, most likely a disturbance uh, between uh, Jewish uh, believers of Jesus and Jewish people who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And this was disturbing the capital of the empire. So Claudius said, y'all get out. Take your disturbance somewhere else. Acts 18 verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth from which it is likely that he wrote the letter to the Romans. He went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. This is why Priscilla and Aquila are meeting Paul in Corinth. The Jews have been expelled from Rome. They're going to different parts of the empire. So what this means for the church in Rome is that now a single ethnic group with a singular perspective on how the Old Testament law should relate to followers of Jesus They ran the church by themselves for about a decade. And Paul introduces two different perspectives that were present in the church, and then one perspective went away. One perspective he calls the weak, the other he calls the strong. I don't think these are positive and negative terms. I'll I'll tell you why in a moment. But, But the weak view Paul describes is, people who put their faith in Jesus Christ but continue to observe some of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Maybe some of the the Sabbath laws, some of the special feast days, not because they believed it would save them or put them in better grace with Jesus Christ, but because it helped them worship 
Jesus. It helped them place their focus on Jesus on certain days. I, I take my Monday Sabbath very seriously. Paul might call that position a weak position. It's not because I think my Monday Sabbath saves me, but because on my Sabbath day, I'm a, I focus on Jesus completely and then I'm launched into a, a work week out of that place of focus. There was then the, the strong camp the strong camp saw that, that the new covenant, the new agreement that Jesus came to enact freed them from having to practice these special days or, or dietary restrictions. Again, I don't think these are positive and, and negative terms, so I, I will use the words the careful and the carefree. That, that the careful among them were, were careful to follow some of these Old Testament rules to help them grow closer to Jesus Christ. And the carefree rejoice that they no longer had to follow those words. It's imagine a driver that stops at that white line before every stop sign and then slowly creeps up beyond it to see what's coming each way. Or there's another driver that slowly moves through that white line, ultimately comes to a complete stop when they can see both ways, and then goes. Both of those people can be good drivers. Both of those people can arrive safely at their location. One is just careful, and another is a bit more carefree. When Jewish followers of Jesus returned to Rome after the ban was lifted, the Gentile followers of Jesus had trouble giving up their monopoly on power and perspective. These Gentile believers in Jesus looked down on the careful and the carefree, excuse me, and the careful were judging the carefree for their lackadaisical attitude. Paul looks at, at both groups, the careful and the carefree, and he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. What about the church today? Our late pastor emeritus, Dick Woodward, he wrote a little pamphlet called 10 Fingerprints of the Healthy Church. One of the fingerprints is unity. And he gives a quick summary in an allegory for church history. He writes this. In the book of Acts, we see a humble group of disciples. They met in the name of Jesus. They simply called themselves the church. Before many years had come and gone, some members of the church discerned a profound truth that many of their spiritual community did not see. Therefore, they separated themselves from the church and called themselves the Church of Light. A few generations later, members of the Church of Light perceived a profound truth in their walk of faith that somehow eluded their brothers and sisters in the Lord. So they separated themselves from their brothers and sisters who lacked discernment and called themselves the true Church of Light. After many more years, Members of the true Church of Light saw a profound theology in the scriptures that somehow eluded a, a large percentage of their flock. When they separated themselves from the fold, they called themselves the only true Church of Light. And the devil broke up in hysterical laughter. Why is this so difficult for the church today? 
I'm going to give a positive read on why this is so difficult. Surely there are some negative things I could bring up as well, but I'm going to do what Paul says. I'm going to believe the best. I don't, I'm not here to quarrel over opinion. So let me give my, my positive reason this is so difficult for the church today. Believers are rarely equipped to discern the difference between disputable and indisputable matters of the faith. That which is a matter of opinion and that which is a matter of the authority of God's word and submitting to the authority of God's word. So let me just say that again. Believers are rarely equipped to discern the difference between disputable and indisputable matters of the faith. And while I would love to teach an entire hour-long course about this, um, I know you don't want to listen to an hour-long sermon about it right now. So I'm just going to give us one tool to help with this, to help at least start the equipping process here. I think you can get about at about 90% of disputable versus indisputable by answering this one question. Does the Bible provide one voice, a variety of voices, or no voice on a subject? Does the Bible provide one voice, a variety of voices, or no voice on a particular subject? Let me give you some examples from the book of Romans that we've been studying. We've already preached through Romans 12 and Romans 13, so I'll do my examples from there. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Does the Bible speak with one voice, multiple voices, or no voice on this topic of blessing those who persecute you? The Bible has one voice on this topic. Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. All throughout the scriptures, you're never permitted to avenge yourself, to go after your enemy, to get what is yours. Romans chapter 13, verse one. Well, one more. He's, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. One voice, no voice, multiple voices on the subject of pride versus humility. One voice. All throughout scripture, the Bible never says, you know what? You should think highly of yourself. You are as great as you think you are. The Bible says, no, examine yourself and God will exalt the humble. He will humble the exalted. One voice on pride versus humility. Romans 13, one, Rich preached on this a couple weeks ago. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that have been instituted by God. Rich mentioned in his sermon, there are other examples in scripture where people are actually commended for disobeying the governing authorities. Daniel, the Hebrew midwives. And so a complete reading of scripture sees when to obey versus disobey as a matter of prudential judgment, that if the governing authorities ask you to disobey God, at that point, Romans 13.1 is no longer in play, and a passage like Exodus or Daniel would be 
in play. So there are multiple voices and Christians are gonna have different opinions on when that line gets crossed. It's a disputable matter. Another one, Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness or in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. This one, drunkenness, quarreling, jealousy, orgies, sexual immorality. This one, the Bible speaks with one voice to all of these topics. And this is where I, I, I have sympathy for why the, the contemporary church has a hard time with Romans chapter 14, verse one, to welcome each other, not to quarrel over opinions, because there are some churches that are taking the indisputable matter of when it's appropriate to express our human sexuality, and they're trying to turn it into a disputable matter. That all throughout scripture, you see sex is a powerful gift that God has given to us. It's so powerful. It must be used in a place where it's productive, where it's healthy, where it doesn't harm anyone that's using the gift. And that is in the context of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And so in the same way that the Bible doesn't have many voices on the topic of quarreling, doesn't have many voices on the topic of jealousy, the Bible is clear that the appropriate expression of our human sexuality is a one voice, indisputable matter type of issue. And this is why I say churches that take indisputable matters and make them disputable get themselves in trouble. Churches that take disputable matters and try to make them indisputable also get them in trouble. Now, what about the no voice? Well, let me, do, let me use this one where it got real quiet in the first service. I probably won't be able to hear that out here. Um, but here's a big no voice one that people come to me and try to get me to turn into an indisputable matter. What do you do, I don't know, say every four years? This happens every four years, people coming into my office. Every four years, people come into my office and they say, Travis, you have to tell people. You have to tell them how to vote in this election. There's too much on the line. Does the Bible have one voice, many voices or no voices when it comes to do you vote for your policy preferences or do you vote for someone whose personal character reflects the gospel? No voice. voice. No voice. I appreciate the interaction. It wasn't like that inside. It was very quiet. (laughs) Outdoor, you're a little more flexible. This is the carefree crowd. Absolutely no voice. No voice. When it comes to that difficult judgment of do you vote on policy matters or do you vote on personal character? And yet... Since, I don't know, let me just pull a number out of my head, 2016, Christians have been dividing and dividing and dividing over this matter. And I'm sure they divided about it before as well. It's just that that's when it really heated up in my own office. And the Apostle Paul would look at all of us and say, welcome one another and not to quarrel over 
opinions. Though we often fail to see it lived out in today's church, Paul's command is no less clear, his rationale no less compelling, and his result is no less the chief existence of humanity. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. So how do we do this? If this is what the restored community looks like, how do we live this out? First, trust the judge. Trust the judge. If you're on your Bible app, look at verse four. Oh, verse four is still on your song sheets, but we're gonna go off of that soon. Verse four, the apostle Paul asks a pointed rhetorical question. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of a number? Who are you? Just recently, uh, my wife Nina and I, we took a trip to New York City to celebrate our 20th anniversary, which will take place, thank you, will take place a little later in, in June. Um, but I saw this event on the calendar and I went for it. Nina has always loved Tom Hanks, like not bandwagon Forrest Gump Tom Hanks fan, like man with one red shoe fan, splash fan, Turner and Hooch fan. She lived through it all. I think she said ever since she was four, five, she's always had this thing for Tom Hanks. And so Tom Hanks has recently written a book and even Tom Hanks has to schlep his book across America. And so Tom Hanks was doing a book tour. It launched in New York City a couple of Tuesday nights ago. And I took Nina to see Tom Hanks. If you're online or in the worship room, you can see a picture of us right now. And after uh, he, he talked, we didn't get to meet him, but his chair was still on the stage. I thought, I gotta get Nina a picture in the chair. So I'm scoping out the scene. I'm looking for the access point to the stage and I find it and there's a woman down front. I said, I kind of slipped on my phone. I said, can you sneak a picture of us on the stage with my wife sitting in Tom Hanks' chair? It's our 20th anniversary. I dropped that all weekend long, was getting hooked up with free bagels at the bagel shop. It was great. All weekend long, 20th anniversary, yes, please. And so Nina and I get on the stage in the chairs. As soon as we sit down, this woman who looked very official, I found out later she was the executive director of the space. She comes charging down the aisle with one question. Who are you? Excuse me, who, who, who are you? Uh, who, who are you? And she goes, do you know what our insurance company is going to think of this? You need to get off the stage. Who are you? At which point her, her husband saves me because he says to her, He's the illustrator for Tom Hanks' book. <laughs> a rumor which I neither confirmed nor denied in the moment, but it bought me enough time to get the picture, get off stage where I did confess uh, that I was not the illustrator for Tom Hanks' book. Uh, and we all had a laugh about it. But you see, who you are determines what is proper for you to do. Who you are determines what is proper for you to do. 
that if I was indeed the illustrator for Tom Hanks' book, it would have been no problem if I was on the stage, if I was Tom Hanks, if I was the editor of The New Yorker that was interviewing Tom Hanks, it would not have been an issue. Because who you are determines what is proper for you to do. Back to verse four. Paul writes, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look at verse 10. Now we're off the song sheets. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? You're not the judge. So it is improper for you to be engaged in passing judgment on someone else's servant. Instead, Trust the judge. Paul goes on in verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every knee, every tongue, Each of us, no one gets away with anything, Paul says. So trust the judge and then welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Second, judge yourself. Judge yourself. Paul actually returns to the idea of judgment in verse 13 with a twist. There's an important wordplay in the Greek language that is unfortunately not captured in the ESV translation. It is captured by the King James translation. So I'm gonna read verse 13 from the King James. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Did you catch the wordplay? Stop judging, but if you need to judge, all right, there's one thing you can judge. Judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block in his brother's way. If there is any judging to be done, judge yourself, Paul says. Judge yourself. Judge your own conduct. Judge how is my behavior affecting others. Verse 15 For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Judge yourself by the standard of love. Is your behavior achieving the end of loving your brother or your sister? This is a a radically deeper community ethic than what our culture preaches. Our culture preaches a gospel of personal freedom and rugged individualism. Our culture does a good job at the not judging part of this. No, I'm not gonna, I don't judge what you're doing. You don't judge what I'm doing. But what our culture is unwilling to do, that Paul explicitly calls us to do, is our culture will never adjust their behavior to meet the needs of a weaker or more careful brother or sister. Our culture says, says, don't infringe on my rights 
If my actions upset you too bad, I must be free to blaze my own trail, create my own identity, and live my life, as Frank Sinatra says, my way. Not so in the restored community. Look at verses 20 and 21. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. You see, the restored community knows a deeper kind of freedom. A man named Leander Keck just puts this beautifully. He writes this. Is Paul urging the strong to sacrifice their freedom based on their correct knowledge? No. He's urging them to exercise their freedom here as the freedom to forego victory over the weak. Only those who know they are free to eat anything are also free not to eat anything for their relation to God does not ride on matters of food and drink. I love that. The freedom of the carefree to forgo victory over the careful. If you're gonna do any judging, judge yourself. Judge whether or not your behavior welcomes others as Christ welcomed you. And finally, Defend the unity of the church as an indisputable doctrine. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse one. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul doesn't say, I have a suggestion. He doesn't say, I've got a little tip for you that will make your community feel like a better place. He says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We have an obligation not to please ourselves. See, it's an indisputable doctrine because the Bible speaks with one voice on this subject. We will proclaim this indisputable doctrine of the unity of the church a little later on in our worship service. But the Bible speaks with one voice on this subject, Old Testament to new. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What we have tolerated as commonplace in the 21st century church was shocking to the apostle Paul. It got back to him that there was quarreling. It's the first thing he addresses in the first chapter of his letter to the church. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, which is Peter or I follow Christ. And then Paul asks some devastatingly penetrating rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's Jesus's prayer for the church. And yet so often we come to church to quarrel over things that should be dialogued over. This past week, just a giant of the faith and hero of mine, Tim Keller, passed away. I found myself crying in my office Friday afternoon. Uh, In his honor, I want to read this quote. The glory of God is available to you in the church in a way that it's not available to you anywhere else. There is no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement in the life of the church. We must defend the unity of the church as an indisputable doctrine of the faith. I heard this week a debate between Um, an atheist and a Christian, the title of the debate was, Is Christianity Rational? Is Christianity Rational? The Christian made his opening statement, and uh, then the atheist came up to make his opening statement. He said, how could you even uh, begin to imagine that this is a rational thing to believe? Christians, they don't agree on so many things because they can't agree on what's happening at the communion table says they can't agree on on, uh, who should get baptized and when they should get baptized and how much water should be used when they get baptized. If they can't agree on these things, why should we trust them on these bigger issues of whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead or not? It was his central argument to why Christianity was irrational. I gave it some thought and I thought, oh, Oh, how I wish he would immerse himself in Romans 14 down to 15, 7. Because God has given us not a problem when it comes to disputable matters. God has given us not an issue to solve when it comes to disputable matters. He's given us a great opportunity. He's given us an opportunity to act like Jesus, not to please ourselves. Why not? Verse three of chapter 15, for Christ did not please himself. He's given us an opportunity for maturity in our faith. It's how we're grown up in the Lord to live side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ who hold different opinions than us when it comes to some of these difficult issues. That's why in verse five, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. It takes endurance to do this. And you don't get maturity without endurance. But most importantly, we'd lose an illustration for the gospel. You see, when we were weak, the one with ultimate strength, the one through whom the universe was created, he bore the failings of our weakness. When he could have moved to every corner of the universe in an instant through the power of the Holy Spirit, he slowed down to walk with us. He slowed down to teach us. He slowed down to touch us. 
When we were dead in our sin, he died on the cross on our behalf. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured that cross. The joy that was set before him was the joy of welcoming us. See, Jesus' welcome does not merely take us alongside himself. He takes us into himself, welcoming us into the life that he shares with the Father. And that's why in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, we have a clear command with a clear rationale, with a clear result when we obey that command. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.